You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we just kneel before you this morning with our hearts encouraged by the truth of your word this morning. I hope that everyone was able to spend some time in scripture today and kneeling before you in prayer. And if not, there's still time to do that, and we need that connection with you. We must have it, for we are told in the spirit of prophecy that no man or woman is safe for a day or an hour without prayer. And so help us to develop that rich habit of communing with you and not allowing that communion to be broken, to be praying unceasingly, to be drawing near and nearer to your throne, to understand that your high priestly ministry is essential in our lives every single second of the day and that we can always turn to you when we have need and so we look to you this morning we don't look to ourselves we don't look to the speaker we don't look to the computer or any other piece we look to you and uh, we ask your blessing to be with us these are just these are challenging times in which we're living but you're a God who has overcome even greater challenges and we can have victory in you. So bless us, we pray, and we come in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So just a real quick review on Monday. You remember, what did we do? We saw from prophecy that God knew ahead of time the rise of what? Atheism. And he used the rise of atheism in attacking apostate Christianity as one of the greatest evidences of his existence and the validity of the Bible through the 1260-year prophecy, yes? And that the fact that those who were trying to do away with God actually executed the will of God gives a demonstration that there is a true God in heaven, yes? And then to answer those bold claims against uh, th that the atheists and the skeptics were making in the French Revolution, how did God respond? He rose up the Seventh-day Adventist Church who answers all of those things that led to a misunderstanding of God's character and a rejection of Him in that time. Yes? Isn't that powerful? Aren't you glad to be a part of this movement? Amen? And then yesterday, or Tuesday, we looked at uh, the top ten archaeological evidences that give credibility to the historicity of the Bible. Yes? And then yesterday, we began to look at some of the other evidences. We kind of just had a very brief overview of... Um, atheism and agnosticism and understanding some of the dynamics of that and realizing that the science, though we can be scientific people, true science leads us closer to God because it discovers what's already there rather than thinking that we invented something, right? And that much of the science today that is being hailed as science that's really just theory, one thing I didn't mention is that it's always shifting. And I can't tell you how many times growing up in school, I would get my science book for the year and it would completely contradict last year's book. And I'll talk more about that later. But like the, the theories of our origins are constantly changing. And one of the greatest attacks on, on religion and especially Christianity is you follow or claim to follow 
one what? One book. But hardly any of any two of you can agree on the same thing, right? People say, well, what, what kind of God is going to have so many fractions? Well, the reality is, is that there's just as many fractions in science. You take two guys that believe uh, the same idea, and they're still going to have differences of opinions. And so many of the arguments you'll find that are used against Christianity are true of atheism and scientific theory as we know it today, evolutionary theory, whatever, today. And so, you know, I, I, would, I would have books in school where it would say, you know, so many hundreds of millions of years ago this happened, and then they'd find some bone that they... And I mean, they were sure. I mean, it wasn't stated as it's believed. It's like, this is fact. And then some bone would be discovered or something, some new layer would be found. And then all of a sudden, it's something totally different. It's just changing with the wind every other year. And so the, if you do any kind of study in that, you find that to be true. So we saw some of those things. And then we began to look at some of the... Ooh, somebody was angry or coming into the conference center for the first time and had no idea the power of the door, right? Uh, anyway, so, yeah, so we, we kind of ended yesterday with talking about prophecy and the power of prophecy and how many times as Adventists we take it for what? Would you agree with that statement? We say, oh yeah, I've just heard this thing before. But to the person who hasn't heard it, it's just mind-blowing. It's just incredible. And as a young, 22-year-old, junior, almost senior in college at a state university who was a hardcore atheist, you can listen to my testimony online if you want to. Uh, you just type in my name, and typically I call it the atheist who found God. Sometimes I title it other things, but you'll find it on there. And so I was 22 years old, and... I'm learning these things for the first time, and for me, it's completely and utterly mind-blowing, the prophecies that so many of us take for granted, even at times I've taken for granted. So uh, that's where we, we left off, and we're going to pick up there today. Now, I did want to make one clarification. I think on Tuesday, there was a sister that asked me about, she said something like, I'm not seeing in my Bible where it says the walls fell flat fell outward. And, and it, it threw me off because I haven't thought about that in a long time. But I went back right after the class and found it. In Joshua chapter 6, you look at the Hebrew word, the Hebrew phrase that's used to say the walls fell down. And then also in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, the Greek word, the word literally means, it means to fall down outward. You can look it up in the you can look up the phrase in Hebrew and Greek, and that's what it means. So I knew that was there. I just trying to remember. Uh, it took me a second to remember it. All right. Well, let's dive into today. I kind of mentioned this uh, the other day, but I just wanted to come back to it real quickly. And this first little piece we're going to go through pretty fast, and then we're going to dive into some other stuff. So I wanted to just point out some of the most incredible prophecies concerning the Messiah. Uh, you know, the Bible predicted the place that Jesus would be born, that he would be betrayed by a friend, the amount that he would be betrayed for. Ironically, in the book of Zechariah, when it talks about that the Messiah would be betrayed by the price of a slave, remember that, 30 pieces of silver, right? 
the price that is listed in the book of Zechariah is not was not the price of a slave in his day. It was the price of the slave of a slave in Jesus' day. That's very interesting. A pro the prophecy about crucifixion, uh, which I think I have that right there, Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, that that phrase, crucifixion. Uh, the, the prophecy was given a thousand years before crucifixion was ever even invented by the Romans. And so that was written about Christ a thousand years before anybody even thought about using a form of uh, cru crucifixion as a form of, of death sentence. Are you with me? That makes sense? So there you have it there. No bones were broken, buried in a rich man's tomb. The exact year that he would be baptized and crucified. Now, this is mind-blowing because in, we don't really realize the impact of this. I present this in my evangelistic meetings. But Daniel predicted, this is to me, <clears throat> you know, many of the, the evangelical and dispensational uh, believers in prophecy and futurists and these others, they believe much of Daniel 9 to be describing who? The Antichrist, right? And they think it's in the future. But when I demonstrate to them from prophecy that the whole prophecy deals with the life and ministry, death of Christ, they're blown away because it fits so much better than the Antichrist version. I mean, the Antichrist version, you have to pull from here and there and jump over here and be over here and throw a few of your own imagining ideas in there and it's just really just, there's no substance to it. But the bottom line comes that Daniel predicted the baptism and death of Jesus 500 years before he was ever even born. I mean, and that's very powerful. And all of the biblical scholars, all of the Reformation uh, reforma reformers, Matthew Henry and many others, you read their commentary prior to the late 1800s and early 1900s, and they all understood that that prophecy dealt with Christ. In fact, so much so that many Jewish rabbis will not acknowledge Daniel chapter 9 because it so clearly points to Jesus as the Messiah. It's very incredible. And the timing of it, I mean, it's not, we tend to just lump all the Old Testament together in one time. But these things were written hundreds of years before Christ even stepped foot on the earth. And I mean, it's in, it's in perfect detail. And then hundreds of others. And I mentioned to you yesterday, if one person were to attempt to fulfill just eight of the more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah, these are the odds that one person could fulfill only eight of those prophecies. And it's virtually impossible. Yes? I don't know that that many people have ever lived on the earth. So it's very, very awesome. Just a quick view of our review of archaeology. From Genesis to Revelation, every book of the Bible can draw some kind of support from what? From biblical archaeology. I would encourage you to read more on it. It's very interesting. So archaeology does not prove the inspired word, that the Bible is inspired, but what, what, what it does do is it proves that it's historically accurate. And that's important, that it get, gains credibility in the academic world and in the scholarly world. So I, I just mentioned this. There's never been an artifact recovered or archaeological finding that's disproved any biblical account. 
and every biblical find has always supported the biblical account. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about bones. That, I mean most most of the most of the the full skeletons that they find to, that they that they put together of you know um, dinosaurs or ancient man or whatever they don't find the whole skeleton. Most of them are fragmented, and there's a piece here, and there's a piece five miles down the road buried, and they just put them all together the best that they, that, that what they think. I mean, everything is based upon what they think it could be, and it's an educated guess. And so, uh, but the biblical accounts, everything that has been found has supported. Now, I'm not going to dive too deep into the, some of these things. These are just a real quick overview but when you think about this text, Colossians 1.7, by Him all things consist. I mean, you think about that. I love this verse because it is, to me, one of the most profound verses in Scripture. But in Colossians chapter 1, I'm just going to turn there real quick because I want to read the whole verse. Um, Colossians 1 and verse... 7. That's not the right verse. It's verse 16. I think I have it wrong on the screen there. Sorry about that. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him... All things what? Consist. That's verse 17. Not, I missed a one there. When you think about the concept that in Him all things are not just created, but also find their existence through Him, that's a mind-blowing concept. I mean, we just can't even begin. And so the, the Hubble telescope uh, <laughs> has been turning many scientists, atheistic scientists into believers. Because back when it was first created, back when they first launched it and all that, the claim was made, we're going to be able to see to the very end of the universe, right? And we're going to be able to tell exactly how the origin of the universe came together, and we're going to see the very beginning, and we're going to see the evidence of, of the Big Bang and all these different things. And so all they saw was deeper space with more and more solar systems, galaxies, planets, and etc., and then they updated the lenses, and they said, now we're going to be able to see. And when they updated the lenses, and every time since, all they do is see a deeper space with more and more planets and what appears to be uh, multiple galaxies and things flowing in harmony. Pastor, and uh, Yes? You know why they call it space, don't you? Why is that? Because there's a lot of it. That's right. <laughs> there's a lot of it. And it's all, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so uh, in Job 26.7, there's interesting statements that are made. It's, the Bible says that, speaking of God, He hangs the earth on what? On nothing. Now, how did they know that in ancient times? They didn't know any of that, right? But somehow He knew. Isaiah 40, verse 22, the Bible says, He sits on the what? Circle of the earth. Now, what did people think for the longest time? 
the earth was flat and like they threatened all the explorers like if you sail beyond Europe too far you're going to just fall off the thing into who knows what right but the Bible spoke long ago and sp talked about the circle of the earth and then it talks about in Job to make weights for the wind. So it's talking about air having weight. And we didn't know that for the longest time, only in recent scientific discoveries. And so some of these things are just incredible that the Bible made the statements long ago. And we could talk more about that, but I'm not going to today. Health principles. I mean, this is mind-blowing because during the Civil War and other wars, what was happening with the surgeries at the tents? What were the surgeons doing? They would work on one, and they would go like this, and they would go right on to the next, and they would go on to the next. And what were they doing? Spreading, Spreading in infection and disease and whatnot. But long ago, when you look at the health principles in the Bible, those were not just Jewish laws. They were universal laws. And people, all of a sudden, you know, they realize, hey, like, if we wash our hands, it cuts the infection in half or more, right? If we just wash our hands in between every patient. And it was a mind-blowing new concept that we just learned a little over 100 years ago. But guess where it was written? It was written already in the Bible, right? Wash your hands, disinfect yourself, bury your waste, and, you know, you know, had instructions for almost everything that would cut back on disease. And many of the modern, you know, uh, hygienic uh, principles that we follow today can be traced back to what was written thousands of years ago. And they knew it and understood it. Amen? I mean, to me, that's got to say something. You look at the diet that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I mean, if man was just some barbaric beast that has evolved over time and has just always consumed flesh and all these different things, why would some barbaric beast who's primitive-minded think about a vegan or vegetarian diet? You know what I'm saying? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet the Bible talks about Adam and Eve being placed there and that science today is catching up with the concept that that kind of a diet is the best for you. You understand what I'm saying? And these things are ancient, yet they're written long before. And so when you really start to think about this stuff, I mean, every, I mean you've got these people today that are just so anti-God and atheistic and skeptical and whatever, and they're walking around and they're like, yeah, you know, we're vegan and, and we're, we're all this. And, and they think that they've invented something. It's like, no, you haven't. Like, we've been doing this stuff for a long, long time here, right? Nothing is new under the sun. And so we have to be very, very careful. Well, the Bible's unity is also something that's very compelling. And the Bible was written, you know, all the books of the Bible in their various uh, forms were written on three different continents and three languages by more than 50 different authors of all kinds of different backgrounds from kings and doctors to farmers and fishermen. Written over about 1,500 years, most of the writers never met each other, and despite these odds, the Bible is ingeniously in harmony with itself. All 66 books fit together like a perfect what? I mean, that's mind-blowing. 
To put it in modern illustration, it would be something like this. Let's say you had 50 sculpturists, people that do sculptures. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but artists. And they've never met each other. And you bring them all in single-filedly without interacting with each other. Maybe a few of them bumping each other because some of the Bible writers knew each other. But you put them all in 50 separate rooms. And you give them a pile of raw mud. And you say to them, make whatever comes to your mind. Whatever you decide to make, just make something. Just, just whatever. It doesn't really matter. And so they all go to work. And you give them each two hours. And at the end of the two hours, you call them out one by one. And they bring their piece in. And they set it down in this room. And as they exit, you notice that as each one lays his piece down, it's beginning to build a perfect statue of something that flows together perfectly, whatever it is, just like you know, a man doing this or uh, whatever. But it comes together as if there was one, what? One author or one artist, one mastermind. That's the equivalent of what's happening here with the Bible. Do you understand that? The book flows together. I mean, you have Daniel unlocking Revelation. You have many of the, you have the, the sanctuary language all through the book of Revelation. You have the sanctuary language all through the Gospel of John. You have things that are so inter, in, intimately uh, woven and connected that there is no way that these books were written just, just made up by people that, you know, all separate thoughts and they're not, they're not connected. The book, the Bible is connected. And that is miraculous in itself. I mean, there's no other explanation for that then there has to be one author, which, of course, we believe that to be true. And the challenge is that you can't just tell somebody that and expect them to believe it. It takes time and investing in studying the Bible for yourself to really understand that. I mean, the, the worst problem of the Adventist message is the Adventist message. You know what I mean by that? Is that it takes a long time to share it with somebody, right? It's not something you can share. Now, of course, you can share the gospel in just a few minutes. I mean, sure, you can do that. But to have them understand the broad scope, it takes time. And so God is not looking for, you know, bisquick Christians. He's looking for Christians who have a desire to know Him more. Um, <clears throat> changed lives. How many of your lives have been changed? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't see people who are converting to Islam, finding just this overwhelming peace and joy and victory in their life, freedom from their past. Typically, they're, they're becoming oftentimes angry and militant. Or, or, you know, you look at Buddhism, people that are uh, converting to Buddhism, they're not just saying, look, I've just found this great thing. I mean, they might for a while, but they still have that sin in their life. They haven't experienced forgiveness from it. But with Christianity, there's truly power for the person who yields themselves to God. Now, if we haven't experienced that or we're not experiencing that, it could be that, you know, there's a roadblock for us somewhere and that we need to really search the scriptures and understand what God, the conditions are to experience that. But change lives, friends. 
I mean, if you could just line those up and tell those stories over and over again, I mean, it would be overwhelming. I mean, when you read in the Gospel of John, uh, he says at the end of the book, he says, I suppose that if everything was written that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in all the world to, con- to contain it. or The world would not be big enough to contain all the books, right? So very, very powerful. So change lives. So how can it be that people who are trapped in addictions can be freed from these and never do them again by putting faith in Christ? I mean, just the stories are, are overwhelming. The evidence is there. And of course, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new what? He's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. If that's not true for you today, it can be. Amen? It can be. And there's no need for us to live in the old person. So, number six uh, evidence is plain reason. Even men who deny the Bible know that a man named Jesus actually existed in history, but always say that he was a good teacher and a good moral man, nothing more. However, a good teacher will not deceive a person into believing something about him that isn't true. Yes or no? So if, if, if I'm a good man and I teach that like, you know, I don't know, that I, if I teach people that just a lie of some kind, whatever it is, I instantly become disqualified from being a what? A good man. So a good man, as we understand it in culture and society, tells the what? Tells the truth. He doesn't tell lies. He doesn't deceive people about himself. He tells the truth, yes? But Jesus always taught that he was who? The Son of God. Not only did He teach His disciples that He was the Son of God, but He taught them that they should teach others that He was the Son of God. Yes? Does that make sense? So either that is true, or Jesus is the greatest deceiver and fraud that has ever existed on the planet. He's he's, He's either a liar or a lunatic. You see that? Because if anybody in this world today walked up to you and said, I am the divine Son of God, not like I believe in Jesus and I trust by faith that He dwells in me. No, like I am divine. I am a God, the God, the Son of God. You would think they were nuts, right? So Jesus is either crazy or He's the greatest deceiver of all time. And other people said it was. But, what, but there were eyewitnesses. So the eyewitnesses account of the apostles and the resurrection. Now this is very interesting because I find that very few people are willing to suffer and die for something that they don't really truly believe in. Now they might believe in it and it might be false, right? But typically, when it's false, they're getting some kind of benefit from it, like they're taking people's money or some kind of thing. But the disciples were poor, they were persecuted, and all but one died a terrible martyr's death. And they even wrote about their own mistakes. You understand? Most people in history, whoever, whoever is the victor writes the history, right? You know what I'm saying? There's always more history than what we read. That doesn't mean we should be skeptical of always what's written. But whoever's the victor usually writes the history. Well, these guys wrote about all of their own problems. And they wrote about being different men. 
And the things that they wrote about, even when they were changed, are very different than what others, generals and kings and so forth, have written about themselves. What do they write about, the, the others? They, they write about the good stuff, but they write about their victories. They write about their conquerings. Very, very rarely do they write about their mistakes and their failures. But these men wrote about all those things, you understand? And they, they, when they were changed, they weren't trying to gain all the things that the world was gaining. They were looking to gain humility and peace and love and joy, very opposite of the things that have been written in the world by other leaders. Does that make sense? It's just very, very different. And so the eyewitnesses. So the Bible has universal appeal. No other book in history or modern times has been able to cross cultural barriers like the Bible. See? And the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I believe, is evidence of that. We're the most multicultural church in North America. Amen? Amen? And so our message, the Three Angels' message, it reaches across all those barriers of racism and hatred and genderism or whatever that so often strive to destroy us and divide us. The Bible reaches all across all those things and says there's another culture that God is calling us to live to, and it has nothing to do with the cultures of this earth. It has everything to do with His culture, the heavenly culture. Amen? So it's a beautiful thing. So there's four questions that people will ask in life. Number one, how did I get here? Do people ask that question? Even the atheist is asking that question. Why? Because they are coming up with all kinds of theories and ideas about how and why we got here. Are you with me? Number two, what is my purpose while I am here? Now what your purpose is, is going to be determined by what? What you believe your origins are. Yes? Number three, this is, this is doing weird things because it's on the internet and all that. But number three, how should I live my life while I'm here? That's also going to be determined by what I believe my purpose is, right? And what, how I believe I came here. And then number four, what happens when I what? And when I say that, I don't just mean like, am I a, you know, the Bible says the dead know nothing. I'm not talking about doctrinally. But is there something more after? Every person of every age, even the atheist today, is asking these questions. They want to know the answers to them, right? They want to know, what, how do I find these things out? And the truth is, of every religion and of every philosophy that's known to man, only the Bible truly provides the answers to those. And I'm not saying that because I'm a Christian, but many other religions and philosophies don't even offer an answer to these things. That, that, you understand what I'm saying? They don't even offer it. You look, at the, you look at Hinduism, and you ask any Hindu, what's the origin of your religion? Like, what's the how's the creation? Of, they'll tell you, we don't know. We don't know where it came about. We don't have any idea where it came from. You ask most religions, what happens when you die? And they, and they either have no answer or some... Answer that nobody's ever experienced. But we have, an an we have an understanding 
you know, Christ rose from the dead. We know that. That's, that's historic fact. We have the answer to all of these four questions. So I love this statement. Are you guys hot in here? Some of you are falling asleep. So either you're hot or you didn't sleep well or I'm boring you to death. It could be that I'm boring you to death. I don't know. But you just pinch that person. We might cut that air conditioner on here in a minute. But notice this statement from C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. You know, when I was in high school, I went to this party, and this was one of the, one of the things that I remember like when I began to come away from that kind of stuff. But there was this kid who was like 16 years old on ecstasy. He was on ecstasy. That was popular when I was in high school. And he was rolled up in a ball in the corner. And I asked him, what's the matter with you? And he said, I'm an orange. <laughs> and I was really cruel in those days. And I went like this and I said, guess what? And he goes, what? I said, I'm going to peel you. And he just like went, oh, you know, he, he ran off. And... <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Like, people are living every day without any kind of hope. I mean, when it's reduced to we think we're a piece of fruit laying on the floor. I mean, what is that? What is that? But that's what people are chasing after today. A feeling. And God wants to give us faith. Amen? Amen. And we've got to know where to find it, where, we, where it's really of substance. He would be either a lunatic, a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, which people did both, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Indeed, he did not intend to. So think about that for just a minute. Jesus did not leave us with an option to consider him as a good man or a good moral teacher. He's either the Son of God or he's not. And every person has to decide that based upon the evidence that they have. Does that make sense to you? So we're either accepting him as that or rejecting him. There's not some little third option, third option that we can just kind of that's kind of neutral in the middle. And there's no middle road or sitting on the fence because the devil owns the fence. You understand that? So it's one or the other. All right. Let me jump forward here to, I did this the other day. This is the um, archaeology piece. And let me come to my next section here. All right. You guys doing okay? All right. Am I keeping you? Are you awake? Yeah. All right. So there are some things that are presented all the time. And some of them will be presented to you one-on-one, -on -one, maybe by someone who's atheistic, or they might be presented in, in just in life and many times in college for our young people universities. And there are answers to these things. And, you know, I have, 
friends all the time who are atheists, who are always throwing these things out at me, and I answer them. I mean, there's websites where, I won't even tell you some of them, but there are websites um, for atheists who, where, you know, just like, just like we have like a manual institute where we train people to share their faith, like they have websites and like little courses so that you can learn how to refute Christianity and this kind of thing. I mean, so they have everything that we have just on the flip side, right? But some of the more common um, arguments, and maybe you have some that you want to share, uh, and, and we'll see if we can answer them, uh, they're being presented continually, and many times Christians, they don't know how to answer them. They don't know how to reply. They don't know what to say. So we're going to pick on a few of those today and see if we can come up with some answers. But one of the, one of the key arguments of postmodernism and atheism and skepticism is that truth is relative there are no absolutes. How many of you have heard people say this? I, just, I mean, and, and look, you have to be very careful and compassionate and kind to people. But I'm just going to tell you, between you and I, this is the most, one of the most ridiculous ideas that what person could ever come up with. Somebody who thinks too much. There are people who think too much. They're too smart for their own good. And, you know, I remember when I worked at... I worked in a food processing plant, and I, and I worked in the lab, and I did testing on the products. And the USDA lead veterinarian in that food processing plant, he's a PhD, he, like take, he, he gets his, shirt, his flannel shirt wet, and he puts it in the microwave to try to dry it out, and it catches on fire. <laughs> and what I'm saying is, like, education is not always everything, you understand? You've got to have a little bit of common sense. You know what I'm talking about? We need some good old backwoods boys that know what they're... Anyway, never mind. So here is, here is some of the arguments with this idea. Morality is relative to one's personal perspective or cultural background. So in other words, would A, whatever you decide for yourself is right or wrong, that's what's right or wrong. Or B, right or wrong for you is determined by where you were born and how you grew up. So if you grew up as a Hindu, uh, your right or wrong is cultural. If you grew up as a Christian, your right or wrong is going to be cultural based upon that. And so what you have is you have all these different cultures and religions, and you have this small group of people, intellectuals, who, who believe that they have arrived at an elevated place above that and now they can perceive that, oh, well, what everybody thinks is right or wrong is really not right or wrong. And really what many of these arguments boil down to is elitism, that we have surpassed all of this. And this was part of the mentality coming out of the French Revolution. We're above all these things now. Well, really, <laughs> what you find is that when people think they're above those, they really just become a part of them again, because we can't escape the fact that we're all the same. So, continue on. Since morality does not originate with God, it did with human beings. So if, so if I'm an atheist or I'm a non-believer or I'm a whatever, then there is no divine, um, there is no divine higher being that dictates morality. So morality comes from us, right? So there's no other plane but us. But it's interesting that the people, many times, who have this view consider themselves to be superior in morality and, and, and intelligence than other people. It's very interesting how that always seems to be the place. 
So even when there's a confession that, or an idea that there is no God, still uh, there are those who are trying to rise above others to establish morality. They're trying to become the lawgiver. You understand what I'm saying? It always seems to happen every single time. Good or moral is defined by society as what is best for the largest number of people over the long run. So that's kind of, humanly speaking, that's where, from this idea, we would establish morality. That whatever is best for the whole, right? And there's a big debate about that in our society today. So, Ernest Hemingway makes this statement. What is moral is what you feel good after. And what is immoral is what you feel bad after. Now, I mean, like, you know, to the non-religious mind, that sounds pretty good. But what it, based upon his statement, what is the standard for morality? Well, feelings and experience. What I do. Therefore, I can really never fully cease to do evil. I can never really fully learn what's right. You understand what I'm saying? Because I actually have to do it to find out. So I'm going to constantly, forever, be doing what? Be doing wrong. You understand what I'm saying? But again, feeling also is the same. But let's take a look at some counters to that, which is, this is what we all believe. Truth is absolute. It is not relative. Saying that truth is relative is an absolute statement, which is also a contradicting statement. You understand what I'm saying? So whenever people say to me, oh, well, you know, truth is relative, uh, it's not absolute. And then I say, well, are you absolutely sure about that? <laughs> because you can never really say with conviction that truth is relative unless you believe in absolutes, because I can say, well, that's a relative statement it's in itself, right? So we have that countering. I mean, and it's, it, all it does is it becomes a circular reasoning. And, and I'm going to tell you that the, the bottom line, the core of that circular reasoning is to escape accountability for wrong actions. That's what it is. That's what it boils down to. I, I want to do whatever I feel and I don't want anybody to hold me accountable for that. I want to do what is pleasing to me at the expense of others, and I don't want to be held accountable for it. I mean, that's pretty much where our society is. And I'm telling you, historically, historically, every society and culture that has reached that place collapses. And we are there. Rome collapsed, and many others collapsed throughout history. Greece collapsed uh, because of that. Secondly, morality goes against the very idea of evolution and, and, and uh, survival of the fittest. Let me explain this for just a minute. According to survival of the fittest, I love this illustration. What, what has to happen in survival of the fittest? The strongest what? Survive. Why do they survive? Huh? Because the weak die. And why do the weak die? Because I have out-competed them for the necessary resources to what? Survive, right? So, 
perfect illustration. What's your name, brother? Joe. Come on up, Joel. Right on up here. He's the new speaker for the rest of the week, ladies and gentlemen. So, Joe, you're, you're a stout guy. I'm kind of a stout guy. I used to play football. I used to lift a lot of weights. Still lift weights, but not as much because I'm getting old and weak. But you're young and strong. Now, let's just suppose that this is uh, a piece of bread right here. One piece of bread, nothing else to keep us alive, two people. What's the nice thing to do? Share. Share. But in survival of the fittest, do we share? No, No, because we are advanced animals. (laughs) Seriously. We are animals without a conscience, and we're going to do whatever I have to do to survive. Just ask my dog when I try to take his treat away, right? He's like... (laughs) So... One piece of bread, two of us. Bottom line is, whoever does not eat that bread is going to die. Yeah? Whoever eats the bread is going to live another day. So survival of the fittest, what are we going to do? Right? So if evolution is true, for, for, the, for, the, standard, for the standard human who's not like seared their consciousness and is some serial killer, which is the minority, but they're psychos like that, and we know, because they're messed up. Their genes are messed up. If I kill Joe to get that piece of bread, according to evolution, and that's the only way to get it, like we're going to kill, he's going to die or I'm going to die, and that's going to be it, because one of us is going to have that bread. According to evolution, if I kill Joe to get that bread... How should I feel about it? Right? No, you, you can. How should I feel? Good. Why? Because I survived. Right? If I were to take this bread and say, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and give it to Joe. I'm going to be the nice guy. Joe, you're going to live. I'm going to die. According to survival of the fittest, how should I feel about that? Yeah. But everybody knows that if I kill Joe, what's going to happen? I'm going to feel very guilty. There, there you go. That's another, that's another option. That's the evolutionary welfare system, right? You just kill somebody. But, but you see the point here. And, so, and then skeptic will say, well, that's because your culture has taught you that it's bad to kill people. And so what, I'm, so what I look at them and say is, so what you're saying is that according to the true core of evolution, it is okay for me to kill somebody and feel good about it, right? But it's actually society that's put the restraint on that. And they're just like, uh, no, but they don't know what to say, see? <laughs> Are you with me? But we all know that if I self-sacrificingly give my bread to Joe, how do I feel? I feel good. And we all know that when we give self-sacrificingly for the benefit of others, there's a joy and a peace that comes. And that has been demonstrated, even scientifically, outside of cultural norm. You understand what I'm saying? Even many wild animals... While some tear the, each other up, but be, we, and we know why, it's because sin has messed them up. There are still many examples in nature 
of animals self-sacrificingly giving. There is something there, this is the point. There's something there beyond the cultural expectations that drives us to sacrifice for one another and to restrain ourselves from harming another for our good. Now our society is gradually moving away from that more and more, but for thousands of years, when you look at the raw data, it's been this way. Does that make sense? So there is implanted in us something of called a what? A conscience that does not arise from cultural expectations. It's there implanted within, and it cannot be denied. So then the, act, the natural question is, if we are simply animals without a conscience who's just here to survive, and the only reason that we're so civilized today is because we've come a long way in evolution, where did that conscience come from? That's the bottom line question. And that's a question that cannot be answered by the skeptic. Yes? You can, you can also um, consider the fact that a child, that yes. a baby, would know mm -hmm. even. And there's no culture yet. Yeah. They don't know anything about that. That's right. They know if they've been done wrong. That's right. That's right. They, they have a sense of justice and injustice. Children have that. And the flip side, the skeptic will say, well, Children are very selfish. Nobody has, that's true also. Nobody has to teach a kid how to be selfish, do they? Nobody has to teach that. You don't have to, they just know how to do that. Well, then that, of course, comes with the problem of sin and the world. Now, if society is deciding what's moral and what's immoral, then who decides which society is moral enough to decide for everybody else what is moral? You understand what I'm saying? If, if, if humans are the ceiling of morality, then nobody in the world can say that it's wrong to be a cannibal. That what Nazi Germany did was wrong. How can you say that? And believe it or not, there are people today who say that. It's not wrong to molest children because that's just part of who we are. And if that's what I feel like I should do, then that's what I should be able to do. Right? Now, if you were in Subway and uh, you were paying for your little nice sub sandwich and you pulled out a $100 bill to uh, pay for that, and as you pulled that bill out of your pocket, I just walked by and plucked it out of your hand and stuck it in my pocket and kept walking right out the door. What are you going to feel? What will you feel? Violated and angry. Someone stole from me, right? And of course, you feel like that's wrong. And you stop me and say, hey, you just stole my money. That's not right. And I say, looks pretty right to me. I just got a hundred bucks. And you may be feeling bad about it, but I'm feeling really good. So that's a perfect demonstration of how this whole ideology is completely and totally flawed. And it's completely and totally selfish. You understand? It's self-centered. It, 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 it's, and it just leads to worse and worse violence and anger and frustration and injustices being happening in the world. So there has to be a morality. And if humans are left to decide that for ourselves, there's no one better than another. Who's more? I mean, the reality is that to establish morality, the establisher must be moral themselves. 
Are you with me? And no human in the world is moral enough to establish morality for another person on an equal plane with him. Now, I can establish morality for my kids, right? Because they are people, but they're not to my stature of understanding. But for those who are, who's going to establish that? You understand? There has to be a higher person that gives that morality. Otherwise, cannibalism, you know, um, uh, race extermination, uh, genocide, and child molestation should be perfectly okay if someone wants to do it. Now, I may not choose that for myself, but if they choose it for themselves, who am I to say, right? You understand where this goes? It's very, very dangerous. And that's exactly where we're going today. I mean, this theory began to be taught, you know, post-World War II, and it's been infected in every generation of young people since. And now people are so confused that you don't just simply have, like, like gay pride parades, but now you have these deeper movements of full-grown men walking with teen boys saying, it's okay if, if, if a 40-year-old man wants to have a sexual relationship with an 11-year-old boy. And there's actually movements for that. You understand? That's where we're at. And so there has to be, truth has to be absolute. There has to be a defined definition of truth, and there's no escape from the idea that it has to come from a higher power. Are you with me? All right. Let's keep going. We've got about five minutes. Number two, the concept of God is not supported by science. Uh, there is a number of statements that are made with this. There is no scientific evidence for the viable existence of God. Scientific evidence goes against the existence of God. Macroevolution is evidence that the creation story is not viable and God does not exist. And Richard Dawkins made the statement, it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, is what he says. How many of you know who Richard Dawkins is? One of the most prolific evolutionary scientists in the world today. And it's very interesting. I mean, I, I almost feel like I should stop here because it's going to take a while to go through this. Um, but let me just make a few points. Number one... To say that there is no scientific evidence for God is unfairly closing the, the door to the idea. It is being closed-minded because science has to consider every one possibility. And there's enough evidence in the secular scientific world to at least consider intelligent design. Maybe not the God of the Bible. But let me, let me explain this. I don't believe it is, but even if if macroevolution is true, if macroevolution is true, and we evolved from lower life forms, that still doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. All it proves is that the book of Genesis, the creation story, could actually be an allegory, could actually be not literal. You know what I'm saying? It could be a story that illustrates how life came into being. I don't believe that, but I'm just saying. Think about it that even if it was true, it still doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. Are you with me? Um, there, uh, there is no evidence that God doesn't exist, only evidence that supports unproven theories. Now, here's a question that I've often asked evolutionists, and I've asked young people especially that are sitting in 
classrooms. And, and by the way, I, think I, I don't think I said this to everyone. I think I said it to an individual the other, the other day. But, you know, young people in college, and I've, and I've talked to them when I was in college and, and since then, but they'll carry around their books on evolution, right? And I go up to them and I say, so we're engaging in conversation. They know I'm a Christian. I know they're an atheist. And I'll ask them, do you know the author of that book? No. Oh, really? Okay. The picture of the author on the back of the book and the description of who they are, do you know for, like, do you know for sure yourself that that person actually exists? That, like, you've encountered that person and you know that they're really who they say they are, that they're not just some made-up thing? No. Well, how do you know then? Well, I just believe it to be true. Oh, okay. The things that that author wrote in the book, did you see those things happen? No. Did you see the process of everything happening that they claim happened? No. Well, why then do you believe it? Well, I just trust that it's true because it's science and I just, I just trust that they're telling the truth. I said, oh, okay. So you've never met the author. You, you haven't seen, you don't know for sure yourself. You haven't actually seen that what they say is coming true is coming true, right? And so really what you're saying to me is that you're believing what you read in this book by faith. And they're like, <laughs> and sometimes they'll come back with a smart comment, but there's ways to get around that. And I said, well, so then really, you're not really that much different than a person who believes in the Bible. Well, well, but, but these things have been established by science. I said, well, what science? Were you there when they did them? Have you conducted those same experience, experiments yourself? Have you taken all of what they say through the scientific method yourself to know personally that that's true? No. Well, then you're believing it by faith. How do you know you can trust that person? Science huh? keeps changing what science Yeah. And science keeps changing. That's right. And I said, look, like, and this is, this is the thing that I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to make a statement for the purpose of this, but it has nothing to do with COVID, okay? Like, it does have to do with COVID, but I'm not making political statements about COVID. But this is what bothers me today with COVID and everything else that their people try to push, is trust the... Okay, the COVID science. What science? No one's ever taken this vaccine before, so how do we know anything about it? What science is there about it? There's none. So I don't have anything to trust, you know what I'm saying? And, and the other idea is that just, just generally, scientifically, science is changing all the time, and people want to portray science as if it's this locked, fixed, immovable truth that will never change, like we believe the Word of God is. But it's not. It's constantly shifting and morphing. And I'm okay with that because we're ever growing and learning, but don't try to present to people that it's just the solid truth that it's really not. Much of it is still theory that we're testing over and over again. You understand what I'm saying? All I'm asking for people to do is just be honest about it. So my thing is, like, so you're believing in this book in the same way that I believe in the Bible. And they literally don't know what to say. And so that's where I'll stop for today. Uh, 
There's a lot of more things that I'm going to say tomorrow. Tomorrow's our last day. We have about a day and a half of stuff to get through. Uh, but we'll make it. We'll make it. So I, I, want, I want you to leave with this, just understanding that like, we don't understand these things so that we can go out and be smart, Alex, to atheists and say, oh, well, you think you're so smart, but you're really not. There's enough belligerent Christians and we need to be humble and kind. I'll talk more about that tomorrow. But I wanted to say it today. But we can have, my point is that we can have confidence in our answers towards people. Okay? We don't have to shy away from them or whatever. But through Christ's method, they can be one. And I'm going to share with you tomorrow some things that you can share with them to make them think about what they're actually saying. Because the reality is... And I've done it. When you, when, you, when you engage with a person intelligently about this, these topics and you take them through the logic of thinking and they can go all the way through that rather than just looking at little pieces here and there that their professor tells them and they actually think it through, they're like, huh, I haven't really thought about that. Most atheists are truth seekers. They want to know what is true. They really want to know the facts. And so if you can present them with intelligent facts they become very open. Does that make sense? So we're not just going out to win an argument or beat somebody up. We're actually genuinely wanting to reach their heart, to give them something to think about, to, to, to expose the holes in their way of thinking so that their hearts can become open for something more. Does that make sense? So I want to make sure that we're clear about that. Uh, because sometimes I get passionate in my seminar but I would never take that same tone or approach with someone that I'm interacting with. Does that make sense? You understand? I might do it with you, but I'm not doing it with them, okay? All right, just to be clear. All right, let's pray together. How many of you are coming back tomorrow? How many of you are not coming back? Oh, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be uh, together once again. We ask your spirit to be in our midst and to draw us close. Thank you for your kindness, Lord, and help us to be equipped and to just think about these things so that when we have an interaction with someone, we can have an answer and a reason for the hope that is in us. So we trust in you, we believe in you, and we know that you'll give us the right words at the right time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.